Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, we'll discuss breastfeeding medicine, what it means to mom and to her infant. Health outcomes, both for mom and baby, depend on those first few years of the way we nourish our infants. Plus, new advancements in systemic treatment for prostate cancer. Most men with prostate cancer are cured of their prostate cancer or die from something else. So most men with prostate cancer do not need systemic therapy, but others have it spread and that's where the systemic therapies come into play. And a passion for medicine and history leads to a unique role in TV and film. The Nick is perhaps the highlight of my life because after writing all these books and articles, it's a television show which shows medicine in the year 1900. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we learn about new systemic treatments for prostate cancer. Plus, we visit with a physician whose passion is curating his collection of historical medical images. But first, the essentials of successful breastfeeding and what it offers to the baby and the mom. Making the decision to breastfeed your baby is quite personal, and it's also one that's likely to draw strong opinions from both friends and family. And even though many medical authorities, including the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, strongly recommend breastfeeding, each mom and baby are unique, and they must arrive at that decision based on their individual circumstances. We'll hear with more on all of this is Dr. Jane Charlam. She's Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Upstate Medical University, and she's the Director of the Division of Breast Health and Breastfeeding Medicine. Welcome to you. Thanks for coming in, Dr. Charlam. I'm happy to be here. So let's just discuss this whole idea of the decision. I mean, it's a very personal one for mothers, but tell us what you've seen in your experience. Well, I think absolutely, like you say, every mom and baby, it's an individual couple, and every family needs to make the best decisions for themselves. However, we know as time goes on that there is a big importance on how we nourish our infants and that health outcomes, both for mom and baby, depend on those first few years of the way we nourish our infants. So if looking back historically, in the early 1970s, our breastfeeding rates in this country were very low and only one out of every four infants left the hospital breastfeeding. Since that time, fortunately, as we recognize the importance of breastfeeding, we've seen our breastfeeding rates go up. And right now in this country, the majority of infants do receive some breast milk at some point in their lives. Unfortunately, though, we're falling short of our goals as a nation as far as what we'd like to see is our breastfeeding rates in longer term at six months at one year. So there are, I mean, it seems to me there are a lot of crucial considerations in terms of that a mother must, comp, you know, kind of contemplate before making that decision. Um, whether they're working, for example, whether, you know, the whole issue of having to pump and, and provide enough breast milk if they are away from the baby for periods of time. But we'll get to those in a minute. I, I'd like to kind of once again underscore what are the known benefits first for the infant in terms of breastfeeding? Well, actually, when I think about benefits and looking at breastfeeding, I don't think about there being any benefits to breastfeeding. In my mind, breastfeeding is the normal physiologic process the way we humans should nourish our infants and the way we humans have nourished our infants for millennia. As mammals, basically. Absolutely. So I don't think of there being any benefits to breastfeeding. What we need to look at, though, are what are the risks of not breastfeeding for both mom and baby. So let's talk about those. As far as the infant, the, the reason we find breastfeeding to be important for an infant is we know that infants who aren't breastfed are at higher risk for disease. And I know folks know about that risk as far as other developing countries, it's very important we worry about infections and nourishment. Here in the United States, we're fortunate to have other opportunities to nourish an infant with 
artificial formulas, but we still know that it's important. We know that our infants right here in the United States, if you do not breastfeed your infant, your infant is more likely to get ear infections, diarrhea, be hospitalized for any reason, increased risk of leukemias and multitudes of other illnesses, including diabetes. We know that infants that are not breastfed have lower IQs at school age. How about things like allergies and asthma and things of that nature? Are those also more prevalent in non-breastfed babies? There's some research out there which is a little bit controversial, so we don't see a strong relationship, but certainly it's something we need to look at. And how about weight gain? Because there was a lot of talk about their more of an appropriate weight gain when they are breastfed as opposed to bottle fed. Absolutely, and this is something we talk about a whole lot in the medical world is the growing incidence of obesity, especially in our pediatric community, and we know that infants who are not breastfed are more likely to go on to be obese. Let's turn to the mother for a moment here. Now, so you've made a very a very a key point, which is that this is the, the, the natural way of all flesh, so to speak, the way we were meant to, at, through our evolution, to function. So where, both in terms of benefits to the mom, but what are the concerns in terms of health if you don't breastfeed? Absolutely, and again, the normal state for a woman after a pregnancy would be to breastfeed. So if we look at what happens to a woman's body during pregnancy, and I'm sure many women can relate, we add fat onto our bodies. When we're pregnant as women, we tend to be a little bit diabetic and women know that we test for that in pregnancy, that we have a little bit of insulin resistance, we call it. Um, There are other changes, hormonal, immunologic changes that occur normally during pregnancy. Now during lactation, that's a time where the human body, where the mom's body can kind of reset those physiologic changes in a normal way. And so if you turn that around, you think, well, if this woman isn't breastfeeding, She's not resetting those processes. She's not going back to the normal healthy state of glucose regulation and fat in her body. And therefore, is she at higher risk for disease? And we're starting to see a lot of evidence in research that shows that women who do not breastfeed after a pregnancy are indeed at higher risk of disease. Things like? Things like diabetes. We know that a mom, particularly moms that have problems with diabetes during lactation or during pregnancy, gestational diabetes, those women are more likely to go on and develop adult onset diabetes, type 2 diabetes, if they do not breastfeed. We know that women are at higher risk of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, high cholesterol, and even getting heart attacks if they do not breastfeed. And How about cancers? Cancers, absolutely. We know that women are at higher risk of both ovarian and breast cancers. Women who do, do not breastfeed are at higher risk of those malignancies as well. And I read something about osteoporosis. Is there a tendency that it, it, that it does lower your risk if you breastfeed? We don't see a great evidence that it lowers risk, but I know a lot of folks come to me in my office and are concerned that breastfeeding may increase the risk because they think, gee, goodness, I'm making all this milk and calcium is in milk. Am I losing calcium from my bones during pregnancy and during lactation? Is that dangerous? for me for my risk of osteoporosis and that's a really valid concern we do find that a woman's osteoporosis her bone density will decrease during both pregnancy and lactation normally but that all goes away once she weans that baby she's at no higher risk of osteoporosis than a woman who didn't lactate so all in all from an overall perspective in terms of health both for the baby and for the mom breastfeeding really is kind of the way to go in terms of ensuring a a much healthier outcome. Absolutely. It's the way to have the most health benefit, or you look at it the opposite side, it's the way we we are normally meant to function. And how about from an economic standpoint? I mean, we often talk about things like, you know, you have to buy formula, you have to sterilize nipples, you have, there's time and money involved, and and breastfeeding is free milk, basically. So... um, Do you think that it has a big impact on our economy as well? Well, certainly at the, if you look at the family level, 
breastfeeding rather than buying formula and bottles, like you said, from a family standpoint, absolutely saves money. And there are different estimates between $500 and $1,000 per baby that you breastfeed instead of bottle feed. But more importantly, when we look at all these health issues, from the societal standpoint, we can save many, many dollars in the terms of millions and millions of dollars, both because of you know, basically preventing disease. Prevented disease for mom and baby. Even when you look at a mom who has a healthier baby, that baby's less likely to be sick, less likely to be needed to miss school, so the mom doesn't need to miss work. So even when we look at time off of work, our society would save money if we increased our breastfeeding rates. There are many ramifications. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with obstetrician-gynecologist Dr. Jane Charlam, and we're talking about the benefits, um, health and otherwise, of breastfeeding. So what do we need to do as a society and a community at large to support women in this role of basically being a lactating mom? Well, I'm glad you asked it that way. I think we have been doing a really good job of promoting breastfeeding, talking about the benefits of breastfeeding or the risks of not breastfeeding. But what my own concern is that we're not doing a great job yet of supporting breastfeeding. We know that women, even women who want to breastfeed, over 60% of them don't meet their own goals. And therefore, we are doing something wrong as a, as a society, as a community, the medical community, the global community. And we're trying to change that. So, so when you say their own goals, first help me understand what their goals would be. And I want to talk a little bit more about what is optimal in terms of the length of breastfeeding and how much breastfeeding. So, so every woman needs to make her own goal. Uh, however, from a medical standpoint, what we see as the optimal or the normal way to, to nourish an infant would be exclusive breastfeeding for six months. That's nothing other than breast milk for the first six months of an infant's life. And then for the next six months, between six and 12 months, adding some complementary feedings, other foods, finger foods, fruits, vegetables, meats, and some grains. And then continuing, though, breastfeeding for that six-month period for at least one to two years, and then longer, depending on what each mom and baby, what's right for them. But at least a year of life. At least a one to two years of life. For breast milk to be an breast important milk. component. Absolutely. If not the sole component, the first six months. First six months exclusive, absolutely. So are people, I mean, so when you say supportive, so let's talk a little bit more about how you envision the community doing a better job or the environment, the, the work environment, doing a better job in supporting women. I think actually it starts in the hospital that when we're caring for moms and babies right at delivery, there are things that we know from research work to help get that mom and baby off to a good start. Little things that don't seem like a lot make a big difference. Things like putting that baby, provided everything's healthy, putting that baby right skin to skin with mom, getting that mom and baby, giving them an opportunity to nurse within the first hour after birth. Having that mom and baby together, rooming in. We know that hospitals that room their babies in with moms, they have higher breastfeeding rates. But how about the larger community? I mean, the whole idea of family-friendly businesses, places where women have a private area perhaps to pump if they need to, or even a, a daycare center on, on site so they can be able to go and breastfeed during the course of a day. I mean, that seems like those are things we've been talking about for over 20 years, I know, in my own life experience. Absolutely. You know, we're fortunate here. New York State was broke a lot of ground as far as breastfeeding rights. We were the first state to have legislation protecting a woman's right to breastfeed in public. And recently, there's new legislation mandating that employers provide time and space for a woman to pump at work. You know, you mentioned work a lot because many women are employed outside the home, and that's a big issue because if your baby's not right there. So one concept, like you mentioned, is to have the baby close by, but for some moms, that's not a possibility. Certainly providing the space is important, but I think something that we need to look at as a culture is providing moms with longer maternity leaves. When we look at, across the world, countries with higher breastfeeding rates, they almost always have a much more liberal policy on having a previously employed mom allowed to stay home with that baby for many, many 
more months than is typically provided by employers here in the U.S. What would you see as ideal then? Let's say let's put on our kind of fantasy <laughs> cap. What would be an ideal period saying the economy could, could balance that? Ideally, I think it would be fabulous to have a year of maternity leave paid. Is that possible in our economy? I don't know, but certainly we have much room for improvement given the current typical four to six weeks that many women are, are forced to Or at to least have do. a job held, whether you're actually yeah. paid during that period or not, at least have the position you know, uh, available to you, when yeah. you once you would want to return. These are obviously very dramatic changes that would have to take place, but I think clearly they would be very important in terms of an infrastructure and providing that kind of su that support for women. Do you find, um, I know in my own life, for example, I did successfully breastfeed my own children till a full year of life, but found very early on that something that helped me very much was that I was told that I could use a quote-unquote relief bottle. I didn't find pumping easy. This is going back 20 more years. 30 years ago before they had electric pumps. And I found that that really helped me sustain it over time was the idea that I could use a formula bottle one a day perhaps and someone else could be helping in the process of, of, of feeding the baby. Do you see that as viable as well? I think many women choose to do that at some point. I don't find that to be ideal because we know exclusive breastfeeding is important both for the baby's health, but also to maintain that supply, especially in the beginning. So if a mom is going to choose to go that route, I would strongly urge her at the beginning not to do that because those early weeks are so important in establishing her supply. So you have a, some kind of a support team going on. Tell us about that really quick. Absolutely. Here at Upstate, we've recently started our Division of Breast Health and Breastfeeding Medicine, and I think that speaks to Upstate's recognition that this is an important topic. So for moms and babies that don't find the support they need in their own medical team, we are very happy to see and talk to them about ways that we can support them through medical management, if possible, and certainly referral to a lactation specialist. Oh, well, we'll have a link to your um, service, your clinic, or your um, department on our website. Thank you so very much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Jane Charlam. She's Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Upstate Medical University, and she is also the Director of the um, Division of Breast Health and Breastfeeding Medicine. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, we learn about new systemic treatments for prostate cancer. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, after skin cancer, prostate cancer is the most common cancer amongst men in the United States, principally found in older men greater than the age of 50. And today's treatment options range from surgery to remove the prostate, to radiation, to active surveillance when the tumor is slow growing and non-aggressive. However, new advances in systemic treatment are now available, and here to tell us more about these advances is Dr. Bernie Poise. He's a professor of medicine at the Upstate's Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Poise. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So systemic therapy is now available for men with prostate cancer. What exactly do we mean when we say systemic therapy? Well, what, what we mean are, are medications that you would take that would be distributed throughout the body by your, your blood system, that, hence the, the term systemic. And it's usually um, intended to treat metastatic disease, disease that's spread from the prostate to either lymph nodes, bones, uh, other organs, either macroscopically, meaning we can see it on scans, etc., or theoretically microscopically because the patient has high-risk disease. So basically these are uh, therapies that have been approved by the FDA for treatment in the later stages of prostate cancer. So does that mean that the first earlier things we talked about like removal of the prostate, surgical removal, 
removal or radiation treatment, those are still the kind of first lines of therapy. Yeah, those are your mainstay, uh, mainstay treatments. Mo most men with prostate cancer are cured of their prostate cancer or die from something else besides the prostate cancer. So most men with prostate cancer do not need systemic therapy, but others, uh, you know, have it spread, and that's where, you know, the systemic therapies come into play. So is this something that has changed over, you know, recent years <clears throat> in terms of our understanding of the biology of cancer? I mean, these new therapies, t I mean, tell us, give us a kind of a, a perspective on how and, and why they've developed. Well, I'm, I'm one of the older doctors here at Upstate. I've, I've been an oncologist for 40-some years. Um, and I've seen, you know, the, the progress over all these decades. We've always known that prostate cancer, you know, most prostate cancer is still under male hormone control. Male hormones are driving the cells to proliferate and eventually metastasize. So we've known for a long time that if we interrupt the male hormone signal to the cancer cells, we can affect the growth of the cancer cells. In the old days, uh, we would do an orchiectomy. We would remove a patient's gonads to decrease their testosterone. We also would give high-dose estrogens, which had lots of uh, side effects and problems that made them uh, worse than, than the treatment. Over the years, as we understand the biology of this hormonal control and understand the molecular biology of how the cell's dividing, we've come up with better hormonal therapies and also the systemic treatments that interrupt the growth cycle of the cells. The other development, it's long been suspected that prostate cancer and other cancers are under immune control by our body. And that's led to decades of research and now finally FDA approved drugs to detect the cancer you know, immunologically. So let's go through these a little. You've been alluding to this this word hormone therapy and mentioning immunologic therapy. Let's go through and talk a little bit more about what exactly they are. So when you say hormone therapy, as you just alluded to, the growth of the cancer cells is in some way controlled through male hormones. Explain that a little bit more. And how is this new hormone therapy um, delivered and how is it, how is it effective? Well, we, we know that prostate cancer is driven to proliferate, normal prostate cells as well, by male androgens that circulate through the body. These are produced in a number of different organs. The main site is the male testicle, but we also know that they're produced in the adrenal glands, which sit on top of the kidneys. And now we know that even some prostate cancer cells make their own male hormone. They endogenously secrete and feed themselves. That hormone has to bind to a receptor on the cell surface, and then it's trafficked down to the nucleus of the cell where the signal to divide occurs. As we understand more and more of these molecular steps, you can develop therapies that attack each one of these steps. So basically what you're attempting to do is preventing that connection and therefore the signal to divide. And in that sense, you're... you're preventing the cancer from the proliferating. Correct. You're, you're essentially short-circuiting the signal transduction process such that the cell never receives the message divide. So it basically, can it, can it shrink prostate tumors and also kind of make them go away or prevent the growth? Yes, it, it, it decreases the proliferation of the cancer cells, so they tend not to grow where they're at. They tend to have a decreased chance of metastasizing. Uh, when you arrest a cancer cell in its development, it can go through a series of processes that uh, lead ultimately to death. Just from simple senescence, the cell gets old and dies. And then every once in a while, if it tries to drive through the replication cycle and cannot, the cell recognizes something is wrong and, and essentially commits suicide. The term we use is apoptosis. Interesting. So basically, how, who are the candidates for this kind of therapy? I mean, we've alluded to it earlier that there are people who are maybe more progressed in their disease, but who are being recommended? Who's being recommended for this kind of therapy at this time? Well, it, definitely patients with metastatic disease and certainly those who, who are having symptoms from it, bone pain, organ uh, failure, a lymph node pushing on a ureter or blocking the bladder, et cetera. So in other words, in these cases, the, the patient basically, the, the cancer has, so, so to speak, escaped from the prostate and is now 
proliferating within the body at large in various places. Correct. They, these patients would have stage four disease, so they, they would have widespread disease that still could grow relatively slowly, but what you're try- and it, it would be incurable. But what you're trying to do is palliate the patients and prevent the onset of symptoms, prevents destruction of organs and pain, uh, and also impacts survival. It's now clear that these therapies do make an impact on the overall survival of the patient versus not giving them any treatment. So they do live longer Correct. with the, uh, the treatment. Let's go on to chemotherapy. Chemotherapy was something I'd always heard, well, we don't do chemotherapy for prostate cancer, but that's not the case now. Well, we, we've done chemotherapy for prostate cancer for a long period of time. Unfortunately, the problem has been that it's not been that efficacious. Whereas it's worked relatively well in certain cancers, it's not worked all that well in prostate cancer. But recently, over the past 10 years or so, there are several uh, agents have been identified which do have activity in prostate cancer and do um, improve survival. So who, again, would be a patient that would be you know, appropriate for that kind of treatment? Again, it's going to be a patient that has metastatic disease. Usually, um, and in the, the recent past, we've delayed the use of cytotoxic chemotherapy, more toxic, more side effects, till after a patient's cancer has progressed and become resistant to all the hormonal maneuvers that we have. We usually go through hormonal maneuver, hormonal maneuver, hormonal maneuver, and at the very end of the patient's course, that's when we use systemic chemotherapy. Now all that's being challenged. There's been studies that shown that if a patient has high volume disease, lots of bone mets, organ involvement, those patients do better if we treat their metastatic disease right from the beginning with both chemotherapy and hormonal therapy. The other instance where we're tending to move the chemotherapy up front is in high-risk primary cancer. If a man has a high Gleason score, a high PSA, if we know that his tumor has descended outside the prostatic capsule into the seminal vesicle, we know that there's a high chance that that disease will come back after primary chemotherapy and radi- or primary surgery and radiation therapy. So now we're moving those cytotoxic drugs up as adjuvant therapy after they've completed their primary modality therapy. It makes a lot of sense. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with oncologist Dr. Bernie Poison. We're talking about some new systemic treatments for prostate cancer. So we've talked about um, hormone therapy, chemotherapy. The big thing on the horizon is this immunotherapy. You're hearing about it in cancer treatment of, of very many types. Tell us about how that's being impacted in terms of prostate. Well, for a long time, investigators have felt that there is immunologic control of a lot of different cancers, and in particular, prostate cancer. Excuse me, I just want to make this clear. So when you say immunologic control, that our own immune system has the capability to fight cancer on some level? Correct. Even though these are the patient's own cells, these malignant cells, they're transformed enough that the immune system can see them as foreign as opposed to self and try to attack it. Now we now, we understand the immune system much, much better, even over the past couple years, in all honesty. We know there's multiple checks and balances on the immune system. And we've known in the past that vaccines have some efficacy in in the treatment of prostate cancer. Um, And the one FDA approved uh, treatment has been the, what's the term is extracorporeal vaccine that the, the patient's immune cells are vaccinated in the laboratory outside the body and then reinfused back into the patient that this medication is called Provenge. Um, so far, it, it, the, the data on um, immunotherapy is that it has um, improved survival of the patients. You don't actually see much in the way of shrinkage of the tumor with Provenge. The PSAs don't go down. But at the end of three years, twice as many people are alive than without the Provenge. So it's FDA approved, and now there's multiple different approaches 
to try and improve on this immunologic stimulation to attack the tumor. Well, it's obviously happening in other forms of cancer as well with great efficacy. And I think recently they're talking about some drugs, Keytruda being one. Correct. Where, go ahead. Well, there's a whole class of drugs. There's, there's vaccines, all right, where you try to stimulate the body's immune system, again, either inside the body or outside the body to attack the prostate cancer cells. And then there's uh, therapies where we try to jazz up the immune system, interleukin-2, uh, where you make it, what are called T-cells divide. Um, then there, we now understand that there's multiple uh, checks and balances on the immune system. We, we're exquisitely um, uh, wired that we don't attack our own body. So there's lots of different molecular steps that prevent our own immune system from attacking our own body. There's now multiple medications that can interrupt that and release the checks on the immune system such the immune system can now attack the cancer. So they basically take the brakes off, so to speak. Correct, yeah. Governors, brakes, etc. Now, their side effects are that they can cause autoimmune disease. So you have to be very careful when you give these drugs that the person, you can't keep giving them if there's any sign that the person's reacting against their own body. Because as you so, so deftly stated that the immune system has all these checks and balances, but we know that in the real world there are these autoimmune diseases where the immune system has gone awry. So it seems to me it's kind of a, a very delicate balance that has to be struck. Correct, and we're, I, I would say we're in the infancy of doing this, and the question is, how much can you stimulate the immune system safely? If you started giving several of these drugs together, would you get a very excellent anti-tumor response, but the concern is, would you get autoimmune disease? Yeah, untoward consequences. Correct. So very little bit of time we have left. There are also new systemic treatments for people who have metastases to their bones in terms of actual medications as well? Correct. And those have helped. What do they do? Well, there's two classes of drugs that are used for bone health. One's called a bisphosphonate, and the other is called a rank L inhibitor. The benefit of the rank L inhibitor over the bisphosphonate is that the uh, bisphosphonate has kidney toxicity. So if a patient has kidney disease already, you can't use it and you can cause it. And the rank L inhibitor doesn't have that. These don't really seem to make an impact on the survival of the patient. What they're intended to do is drive calcium and other minerals into the bone to promote bone health. Prevent fractures. Prevent fractures, prevent bone pain, etc. Um, and that, that's their main role. So we tend to use them in men that have lots of bone disease and symptoms from their bones. I don't want to miss this last point. What would you say, you said that we're moving in the direction of possibly using some of these new therapies, systemic therapies, instead of as at the last resort, perhaps moving them up to the first line of defense. Is that something you see happening in the near future? Oh, yes. There's a number of clinical trials and some that have been completed that show that using, say, chemotherapy and hormonal therapy for high-risk disease at a certain point seems to improve survival and response. Uh, we even have a study that's being brought uh, here at Upstate about using some of the newer hormonal therapies in men who you otherwise would manage by surveillance, men that are older that have a small amount of prostate cancer. And the question is, if we move these hormonal therapies up, does it make an impact on their overall survival? We don't know the answer. Well, it's a new frontier. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing all these very, very important new breakthroughs with us. My guest has been Dr. Bernie Poise, Professor of Medicine at the Upstate Cancer Center. Next up, we visit with a physician whose passion is curating his collection of historical medical images. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Upstate's Health Link on Air, Linda Cohen along with you. 
Well, the history of medicine is filled with many lessons for today's practice of medicine. And as Winston Churchill was purported to say, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, joining us with his unique perspective on medical history is Dr. Stanley Burns. He's an ophthalmologist who has had extensive collection of medically-themed photographs and who has served as an historical medical consultant for numerous TV shows and films where his expertise has helped to create, recreate authentic period medicine. He's joining us via telephone from his home in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Burns. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. So let's take us back to when and how you became interested in all of this. Now, I know you graduated from medical school here at Upstate in 1964. Tell us what happened next. Well, even before that, one of the first apartments I rented um, at medical school was uh, we rented an apartment that had belonged to a doctor, and he had left a lot of his old books and all of his instruments. So the apartment was decorated with the instruments and the books, which I still have. And um, I was always interested in history, and I was always interested in how medicine got to where it was. And uh, after leaving uh, medical school, uh, I just continued uh, my interest in medical history uh, by collecting the books of medical history. Was there some need that you had to bring attention to some aspects of medicine and perhaps the culture that surrounded it that you thought might be lost, like to correct our perception of history in some way? Well, what I... What I learned, and I started collecting photography in the uh, uh, mid-1970s. I wish I had done it uh, years earlier. And I realized that pictures sometimes don't match with the written explanations because we many times discard the pictures, uh, the photographs, uh, that we don't like, the ones that don't represent us, like the, and the ones that represented... Uh, bad practices, bad results. And so I realized that uh, by collecting photographs, and which, they, which were available and were being discarded at the time as photography uh, was being recognized as a major art form and as an important historical document. And so that I just delved into it. Uh, and I've been buying uh, photographs since that since 1975, every day. There's not one day that I'm not looking at photographs uh, with eBay now somewhere around the world. That's and really... Written, and I've written 46 books on medical photographic history, over 1,100 articles. Wow. And uh, this is uh, essentially what I do. And this then, is a passion for you. Yes, and an interest, because uh, I've discovered, uh, and I try to bring to constant attention, uh our history, what we and how what we're doing now relates to it. Well, you're an ophthalmologist, and I know you're continuing to practice that as well. But how does that how is that career intersected with this interest? Well, the eye is like a uh, camera; it's always been, uh, you know, uh, associated that way. Certainly, with, in teaching, and uh, and the interest really comes from the details. What I've learned as an ophthalmologist is that you know, what we have is attention to details. And that's one of the things I got from studying photography, because when you take a picture uh, or when you even write a story about an operation or an event, uh, you don't see all the details that may be important 100 years from now, like how, how the electric cords run, the kind of shoes the person wear, the fact that they didn't wear hats and gloves, although uh, other major institutions people were wearing. Uh, hats and gloves and masks. And it's that kind of history uh, that you see. What we're discovering now isn't going to affect medicine for several years, but when you write the history, they'll say such and such was discovered uh, in the year, you know, 2016. But really doesn't become standard practice maybe until 2026. So it's really the, the, that um, often stated statement of the picture's worth a thousand words is really very true in this case. It, it, you're really able to document history in a way that historians, just by writing about it, can't really accomplish. Yes. What I've, what I've learned to do is that uh, no matter how smart we are, I don't think you can remember one sentence you read last week. However, I could show you 500 pictures today you'll remember forever. Mm. And I learned that creating photo essays about a topic uh, are a better way for most people to remember a topic, be influenced by it. 
Now, it sounds like your collection right now has grown to something over a million images, and they span from 19, 1839, which is around the birth of photography. And where do they go all the way up to? Till about 1960. Uh, I usually uh, only buy images that I have the rights to. So because I'm really a publisher and a historian, I just use the photographs to supplement my stories. And uh, the stories are... Uh, worldwide, uh, we have exhibitions around the world on various uh, medical uh, topics. Now, you've had you've loaned some of your collection to the Smithsonian Dental Museum. Tell us about that. Yes, I I, I had the inaugural exhibition for the uh, National Museum of Dentistry. It's just one of the aspects history of medicine in the 1840s when uh, dentistry became a uh, uh, more of a profession. Uh, dentists were doctors. They were MDs, and so they were part of my history. And so I had the earliest collection. I, of course, I wrote a book on the American dentist with uh, one of the uh, people from the Smithsonian and, and a couple of other dental historians. And so I've covered most of the major fields. I have a series of uh, uh, seven uh, four-volume series of uh, medical specialties, uh, that was uh, supported by uh, the pharmaceutical industry in the early uh, 2000. So I've done the history of nephrology, the history of ophthalmology, wow. oncology, uh, psychiatry, uh, dermatology, and wow. I lecture on all those fields. Hold that thought for a moment. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with ophthalmologist and medical historian Dr. Stanley Burns. We're talking about his collection of medical photographs that have illuminated our hist- our knowledge of the history of medicine. So, Dr. Burns, what would you say? you've learned most significantly from your photos? I mean, obviously they're huge and they span many, many, many decades, but what would you say stands out in your mind in terms of how photos were used, perhaps, or you know, what particular truth jumps out at you? The truth that jumps out, of me, out to me is that what we're doing today in 50 years, or, well, in my show, The Nick, uh, uh, we look at that, what we're doing, and we are doing the best we can. But 50 or 100 years from now, people will looking at us the same strange way uh, that we look at these past photographs. And that uh, that's, I think, one, perhaps the greatest lesson that we learn from, from the imagery, because... Uh, that medicine is constantly changing and medicine, advancing. Yes. Uh, for instance, I'm working with uh, Dr. Martin Blazer, uh, from uh, NYU, I have a my, I have professorships now in medicine, psychiatry, medical humanities at New York University. And one of the things that uh, Dr. Blazer and I were working on was a book on history of infectious disease, and he's the proponent of the uh, human uh, uh, biodome. But the fact that we will, maybe 25 or even 50 years from us, they'll be able to tell the disease we have or what we're going to get from the bacteria growing on us and in us. And mm. the diagnosis will be just swabbing all our orifices and skin. Wow. And, and as I said, what, what we think we're doing today, the, the lesson I try to give in, in most of my lectures and books that doctors are doing the best they can 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 400 years ago in trying to help their patients. But they labored under inferior knowledge and technology. But weren't there some things that they were doing then that actually still hold true today? Uh, some things. I don't know what you what you're. Uh, well, just you're basic healing about. concepts of compassion, perhaps patience. You know, there are aspects to healing that go beyond just the pure science of it. Uh, yes, there are. That's where medical humanities comes in. Right. It, it's being able to hold your patient's hand and be able to. Uh, convey to them uh, what you can do and what you can't do. And that you care about them as well, I would think. Yes, but this is, this, in, in a great degree, that's a modern concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, because looking at the pictures of the history of medicine and how uh, photographs were taken, uh, for instance, there was a very little informed consent. Mm-hmm. People took photographs of uh, patients, the full patient, you know, with their face and their entire body ex- exposed without any consideration for uh, patient privacy. But that was the 
standard at the time. That was the norm, yes. Yeah. Now, you, you alluded to the NIC. Tell us about that. What is it and exactly what, you've been, what have you been doing? What's been your involvement? Well, the NIC is perhaps the highlight of my life because after writing all these books and articles, it's a television show. Uh, on, it was on uh, Cinemax, and I can get it on HBO, which shows medicine in the year 1900. Uh, the amazing Steven Soderbergh is the director, uh, the spectacular Clive Owen is the lead actor, and you will see uh, the most accurate portrayal of 19th century, 1900 medicine that there ever was. And, and the ha- show was so successful that uh, uh, Comedy Central did a skit on it, Amy Schumer, uh, last week called uh, Little Nick or Nick Jr. And uh, the idea of being historically accurate, and I've gotten letters of uh, and calls from around the world of how historically accurate that show is. And it's accurate in the sense that the procedures, the diagnosis, and what we show are as close to the events as possible. And that is as a result of all of your knowledge based on your collection. Yes, and the stories. I was on set... Uh, for every day for the medical material and ancillary material from 7 in the morning till 7 at night. Wow, well, they were clearly very lucky to have you. Well, it was a great joy of my life to see the stories that I have written uh, come to fruition. To be able to see it played out by major uh, Hollywood personalities was a great uh, accomplishment. I'm sure. And also, I understand that uh, Ridley Scott has contacted you on another project, Mercy Street. Tell us about yes. that. Uh, well, Mercy Street is still ongoing. It's a, uh, a PBS project about Civil War medicine. And uh, and uh, my medical expertise was used there. Again, I was on set, showed him how to do amputations. And uh, as a part of that is that uh, this August, I'll be uh, Opening, a, uh, I'll be part of the uh, well, the inaugural speaker and exhibition is the new medical museum in Gettysburg. Wow! And so, uh, the interest in the history of medicine is is worldwide. Last year, we had a major exhibition and, and performance in Bologna, Italy. We were invited by the government. Well, clearly, medicine and health is an international concern and, and an international field. So, it sounds like you would have a far ranging. Um, opportunity for both resource material, but also to share your knowledge. Tell me, what's your main hope in just closing, because we're kind of running out of time, what's your main hope with regards to this collection? What do you see as, besides your own enjoyment and curiosity, what do you see as the main mission of of this collection? Well, it's preserving the history of medicine. I have uh, unquestionably the largest collection of historic medical photography, especially from the earliest era, the early 1840s, 50s, and 60s. And the idea is hopefully to keep the collection together, to go to some institution, um, because it is itself a document. From the 1990s, the collection has been recognized as the most important historic and documentary collection in the United States. They've called it a national treasure. Well, I think it's wonderful that you're doing it. It's obviously a joy and a passion for you as well, and I can't imagine anything greater than making a contribution to our knowledge and our world knowledge and also fulfilling a dream of your own. So I want to thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. My guest has been Dr. Stanley Burns. He's an ophthalmologist in New York City and medical historian who has an extensive collection of medically-themed photographs and who has served as an historical medical consultant for numerous TV shows and films. Once again, Dr. Burns, thank you so much for joining us today. As I said, it's been my pleasure. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. One of the enduring topics the Healing Muse receives concerns grief, such a profound and sometimes frightening emotion. I'd like to share work from two of our writers, one an essayist, one a poet, as each grapples with the aftermath of loss. The first comes from central New York writer and self-described recovering academic Jill Swenson. 
Here is an excerpt from her essay, Crazy Chick Waiting for a Collect Call from the Sundance Kid. Grief hits me upside the head, knocks the wind right out of my sails, cuts me off at the knees, weighs on my chest heavier than a two-ton truck, presses down on my shoulders, and racks my addled brain. Grief washes over me. Grief inflicts itself upon my soul uninvited and unwelcome, slips into my life on a stealth mission, takes me hostage, and shakes me down. It might be a verb, but grieve isn't something I do. It's something done to me. I try to manage my responses to the reality of death, but bodily reactions don't allow my mind much control over the matter. Lead feet, bowed head, shoulders to ears, hollow eyes, snot and tears. Grief grabs your appetite and spits it in your face. Death casts grief like a shadow upon those left living. It is a physical, spiritual, emotional, intellectual wallop. I stand in the shade of the tree of forgiveness and wail. Yes, Sam's death feels like a spanking for which I examine my conscience for the sin that evoked it. Grief can bring along its relatives, guilt, the what-ifs, and shame. Grief makes me feel naked. Every nerve is exposed and raw, sensitive to the touch, the shadow, the memory. I'm ashamed to be a widow. It's a status assigned, not elected, not my choice. I resist, but it is futile. Grief makes me regress, irritable and fussy like a teething baby. My patience, good manners, and small virtues got sucked out of my soul with his spirit's departure. The second reading is from Arizona poet Donna Pfluger. Her poem is entitled, How to Endure the Beast Called Grief. Be a grackle, shine with the glossy black of loss. Stare down grief with beady yellow eyes, screech and whistle. Raise hell in a parking lot, fight over scraps of memories, and win. for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we explore the concept of transitional care for the elderly. Plus, we learn all about lupus. And with suicide on the rise again, we'll examine some new prevention strategies. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <music>